Whether you're in Brentwood or you're live streaming or you're at the Franklin campus this morning, it is a privilege to open our Bibles together to the book of Jonah. And so I want to invite you to do that now. Take out your Bible, open to the book of Jonah. If you are following along in your Jonah study booklet, take that out and open to Jonah chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to do a bit of review that will set the context for where we go this morning. Remember Act 1, Scene 1, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, right? God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh to speak out against the wickedness of the people of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't like that idea, and so he turns and he runs the other way, gets on a boat headed in the opposite direction, like my favorite phrase from Duck Dynasty, he gone, right? He is gone out of there. Act 1, scene 2, God sends a storm in the path of Jonah's boat. The storm is wild. The storm is breaking the boat to pieces. The sailors on the boat, they get scared, so scared that they begin throwing their cargo overboard, so scared that they begin crying out to their gods. Meanwhile, Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. Captain comes and he wakes Jonah up, says, Jonah, get up and cry out to your God. Jonah doesn't do it. Men on the ship, they discover that it's Jonah's responsibility, it's Jonah's fault that the storm is on their boat. Jonah, they discover, is running from his God, the Hebrew God, the one true God, the God who has power and authority over the sea and the dry land, and they become even more scared. Jonah says, well, why don't you just throw me overboard? Men on the ship don't do that. They try to row to shore. Can't get to shore. The storm gets worse. They cry out to God. Again, this time they cry out to Jonah's God. Jonah doesn't join them when they do it. And finally, finally, ultimately they do, in fact, throw Jonah overboard and the storm stops. They pray to God one more time. This time they put their trust in Jonah's God and they worship him. Meanwhile, Jonah, who's been drowning, gets swallowed by a fish. A whole lot happens in Act 1, doesn't it? And then in Act 2, Scene 1, where Michael was last week, Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he finally prays. And at first glance, this seems to be the turning point in Jonah's life. But read Jonah's prayer again in your authenticity meter will start to twitch. Something doesn't smell right. Study it for a little while and it becomes more obvious something isn't right. Michael helped us with this last week. Jonah hasn't changed. His prayer is thoughtful. It's beautiful. In fact, it does express Jonah's gratitude, but it also exposes the depth of Jonah's heart. Jonah still has a hard time letting God be God. Now, I appreciated Michael's comment last week. We have to be careful here not to throw Jonah under the bus. He he does pray, which is something that he doesn't do in chapter 1. He is sincerely grateful for what God has done to save his life, how God has provided for him and delivered him from the fish. It's a physical comprehension of salvation. God has delivered him physically from a life and death situation. He does attribute that to God. The problem is 
That's all that Jonah prays. There is no evidence in here of genuine repentance. He doesn't repent for running from God. Doesn't repent for his lack of compassion toward the men on the ship. He doesn't even own what he did that put him in this situation. He's just glad he's still breathing. His prayer exposes his heart and his heart toward God has not changed. This week, Act 2, Scene 2, or Jonah's Prayer, Part 2, is more of the same. And Jonah's prayer continues, but it doesn't get any better. I have a friend who sells used cars. He's been doing it for a long time. And several years ago, I was uh, asking him for some help as I was trying to find some used car, a used car. And so he was helping me to do that. And I was telling him about some of the cars that I was looking at. And he said to me, you know... When you get really interested in something, you better bring it by here and just let me take a look at it. There are lots of ways to make something that is in not very good condition at all look really good on the lot. We call it polishing a turd. (laughs) Ten, four, and we don't want you to get stuck with one, okay? Needless to say, that image has stuck with me over the years, And frankly, when I read Jonah's prayer, it was the first image that popped into my mind. You see, at first glance, this looks really good. It has all the appearances of spiritual maturity, but dig around just a little bit, open the hood and look underneath the hood, and it proves to be a heavy dose of spiritual superficiality. I believe that this prayer, this scene is included in this book, not just to expose Jonah's heart, but also to expose our hearts as well. So let's look at the text. You can join with me. Our text for today is chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to pick it up back in chapter 1, verse 17, and then read the entirety of the prayer for us before we get to our section. If you're following along in this Jonah study book, The end of chapter 1, verse 17, is on page 12. So just pick it up with me there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed to pay, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up 
onto the dry land. Father, thank you for Jonah's prayer as it's recorded here. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand it and that you would help us to respond to it by applying the principles that we find here into our lives, that we might be changed more and more into the image of your Son. And I pray that as we look at this complicated prayer, that you would make my words simple and clear as we understand it together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Michael said it last week, Jonah's prayer is also a psalm. It's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It's meant to be sung like the other psalms or songs that we have in the book of Psalms. Much of the language here, in fact, is taken from the book of Psalms. The structure here is very similar to the Psalms that we have in those other places in the Old Testament. The imagery here is very similar to the other Psalms that we have, specifically the water imagery, similar to at least six other Psalms that we have. Everything in Jonah's Psalm, everything about Jonah's Psalm looks on the surface like it could fit right in. But when we take a closer look at the content of Jonah's Psalm, I think we'll find that it doesn't quite measure up. One author that I read this week called Jonah's Psalm the pseudo-Psalm, and I think he probably gets it right. I'm going to take some time here just for a few moments on the front end to make two observations from the text, specifically as to how this psalm compares to the other psalms that we have in the Old Testament, and then we'll talk about what we can learn from it. First observation is this, there's very little in Jonah's psalm about the character of God. There's just simply very little in Jonah's psalm about the character of God. We'll see that contrasted in in just a minute. There are some places in Jonah's psalm where you could draw conclusions about God's character, but nothing that speaks specifically to the character of God. In fact, Jonah's psalm places the emphasis on Jonah, not on God at all. And I'll show you an example of that. You can see it in verse 7, our first verse in our section for today. It's where Jonah says, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, there's nothing about that that should necessarily jump off the page at us. It's, it's just that we notice the first person pronouns. We, we notice that the emphasis is on Jonah. The emphasis is on what was happening to him. I was fainting away just means I was getting near to death. I was getting near to death. And then what he does in that situation, I called out to you. I remembered you. I prayed to you. Jonah is the primary emphasis. Character of God is the secondary emphasis. When we look at other Psalms, we find just the opposite. The authors of other Psalms, they include very little about their personal experience, their current circumstances, the way that they respond in those current circumstances, very little about their personal experience, and they place the emphasis on the character of God. I'll give you an example from Psalm 116 that starts very similar to Jonah's psalm, but very quickly turns to God's character. Here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 116. He says, The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. 
I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Transition to God's character. Here it is. Gracious is the Lord and righteous is the Lord. Yes, our God is compassionate and so on and so forth. The emphasis is on God, who he is and what he does. We don't find that pattern in Jonah's psalm. And what we do find exposes his heart. If I were to build on what Michael said last week about Jonah's psalm being all about him, it's it's all about me, we might make this observation here that Jonah's psalm is self-centered while the other psalms are God-centered. In fact, we saw this a few weeks ago when we opened to chapter 4. When when Jonah actually does talk about the character of God, he does that in chapter 4, the first few verses, when he actually does in this book talk about the character of God, God's graciousness, God's uh, protection, God's long-suffering, he's slow to anger, God's abundant loving kindness. When, when, God, when Jonah talks about God's compassion and those other attributes, he actually talks about it not as the basis for his praise or thanksgiving like the other psalmist, but as the reason for his disobedience. He doesn't want God's character to be demonstrated to the people in Nineveh. And so he runs from the character of God. It's the reason that he runs as far west as he could possibly go. You see, Jonah's psalm, it doesn't quite measure up. He's just trying to put enough wax on it to make it shine. Second observation I would make is this. Jonah's psalm smacks of self-righteousness and superiority. It does. It's a bit subtle here, but I want you to see it. And it's not very easy to understand the Hebrew language here, but I'm going to take a couple of minutes to walk us through it. So look at verse 8 and verse 9. They go together. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, comma, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, which I have vowed I will pay. Let's take a minute to unpack this. That that verse 8, that phrase in verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, that's a difficult phrase to understand. I spent a lot of time on that one phrase this week. The word for faithfulness is the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, the word hesed. It usually is translated grace, and it usually refers to God, God's grace toward his people. And when we read this sentence and we understand the Hebrew sentence structure here in verse 8, it's best to translate it that same way here. In other words, when people have regard for or worship idols, when people worship false gods, it's God's hesed that they lose out on. They lose out on the grace that could be theirs. So if we were to restate this phrase, this sentence in our context, with our sentence structure today, we might say it this way. Those who worship false gods forfeit the grace that could be theirs from the one true God. So Jonah here is saying, 
Not only is it futile to serve other gods, not only is worshiping other gods futile, but there is also an opportunity cost. When you worship other gods, you lose out on the grace that God has toward you. And that's something that none of the other gods can offer you. Of course, what Jonah says here about God and about those who worship other gods is true. But what I want us to notice in this context is Jonah's posture. I want you to notice the posture of Jonah's heart. Jonah makes this indictment on idolaters by using himself as the comparison or by using himself as the contrast. There is no, please God have mercy on them, those who are confused and misguided. Please have mercy on them just as you have shown mercy on me. No, it's just the opposite. He says, those who worship God, that's bad news, but I, I sacrifice, I make vows, I give thanksgiving and praise to the one true God. It might be Subtle, but as we look underneath the words, it's obvious that his language reeks of self-righteousness and pride. He hates those who worship idols and at the same time sees himself as superior to them. And when we read this phrase, this comment, this part of Jonah's prayer, in the context of the larger story, it exposes what is really going on in Jonah's heart. He still sees himself, even with all he's done, even with all the ways he's turned his back on God, even with his lack of compassion, even with his lack of genuine repentance, he still sees himself as deserving of God's grace, God's hesed, and he sees those who worship other gods as undeserving of God's grace. Question, who in the story so far would fit this description that Jonah has of idol worshipers. Who in the story so far are heathen, pagan, idol worshipers? You remember this back to chapter 1? Who is it? Who is it? Men on the ship, the sailors. That's exactly right. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, Every one of them cried out to a different God. Okay. Question number 2. Who in the story so far, who in this story in the book of Jonah so far, has in fact forfeited the grace of God that could be theirs? Who has turned their back or abandoned the grace of God that could be theirs? Is it in fact in the story, the men on the ship or is it Jonah? Who is it? It's Jonah. Jonah is the one who is running. The men on the ship, they're actually turning toward God. They're the ones who pray. Jonah doesn't. They're the ones who move toward Jonah with compassion. Jonah doesn't show any compassion to them. They're the ones who respond to God's work in their lives. They're the ones who trust God, who offer vows and sacrifices, who are the first to worship God. Jonah isn't superior. If anything, he's simply following their lead. And when we compare Jonah's self-righteousness and exclusivity to the other Psalms that we have in the Old Testament, we find something very different. We find a much deeper humility and a genuine desire for all to know God's grace. 
listen to this short section from Psalm 22. From you, God, comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall make my vows before all who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over all the nations. Hear the humility and the equality in the words of the other psalmist. See, Jonah's psalm is like what my friend used to say or does say about used cars. It's all shiny and polished on the outside, but there is something odious underneath. And when we step back from the text and we look at this scene, Jonah's prayer in the context or against the backdrop of the whole story, I think there are three principles that just drop into our lap. I think there's something to be learned from Jonah. I think there's something to learn from the fish, actually. And I think there's something to be learned about God. Let's start with Jonah, okay? Here's the principle. Jonah's psalm reminds us that any one of us is capable of spiritual superficiality. Any one of us is capable of spiritual superficiality. Any one of us is capable of presenting an outward righteousness that doesn't reflect a changed heart. It's possible to know God, to pray to God, even to sincerely thank God and still resist God at a heart level, still be disconnected from God. Everything on the outside can look good. It can sound good and yet not be very good at all. That's a disturbing reality. And that's true about the prophet Jonah. Interestingly here, Jonah's prayer is not just a reflection of his own heart, but it's also an apt description of the nation of Israel during the life of Jonah. The nation of Israel at this time was spiritually superficial. They embraced the same kind of self-righteousness that Jonah inhabits here. Same kind of pride, proud that we are the chosen nation of God, proud of our heritage and our future, and only about an inch deep. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They're not compassionate. Ultimately, they weren't very different from the Gentile pagans that they so despised. That's true of Israel. That's true of Jonah And maybe what's most disturbing is that the same thing can be true of the church today. So easy for you and me to fall into spiritual superficiality. To be more concerned about how my spiritual life looks than what it really is. To mimic the right words or the right behaviors and still be resistant where it matters most. To acknowledge God, but to stop short of genuine repentance. To cry out to God, to pray to him only when my circumstances demand it. 
to be insensitive to my own sin, but to recognize the sin in others, to fall into the trap of comparison, to be self-centered, not to be God-centered. Wow, it's like I can be just like Jonah so that what looks like change in me really isn't. And what's buried deep within me could ultimately drown me. It's sobering. You know what the Bible says about spiritual superficiality? The Bible calls it, or God calls it, being lukewarm. He speaks to it in Revelation chapter 3, where he's talking to the church at Laodicea. Here's what he says. I know your church deeds. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Not super comforting, is it? Not comforting at all. I'm going to make a leap here. And I'm going to say this. I'm not saying that what God says in Revelation is what happens here in Jonah. I don't know that. I just want to draw this comparison. So look at verse 10 of chapter 2 in Jonah. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. The fish spit the lukewarm Jonah out of his mouth. Are you tracking with me? Now, the most important part of this is that God has a plan for Jonah and nothing would thwart his plan. That's the key to the text. But isn't it interesting that the language we find here is similar to what we find in Revelation? Maybe, just maybe, Jonah's spiritual superficiality had made that poor fish stick to its stomach. When we take that fish, it translates to another observation or another principle. It leads us to a second principle, and it's something that we can learn from the fish. And here's the principle. Creation models and obedience humanity would do well to emulate. Creation models and obedience that humanity would do well to emulate. I want to show you this with the fish in the text. Look at chapter 1, verse 17 one more time. Here's what it says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Now look at chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish to spit Jonah out onto dry land, and the fish did exactly what the Lord commanded it to do. It would serve us as humans to be a little more like the fish. No resistance in the fish. No heart problem in the fish, right? No second guessing in the fish. The fish did not hear God's word and ask God, God, would it be okay if I just took a night's sleep on it? No, fish doesn't do that. God commands the fish when he does. There is no question as to what the fish would do. No question. When God commands the wind, chapter 1, no question as to what the wind would do. When God commands the storm, sends it in the path of Jonah's boat, no question as to whether or not that storm would reach its destination. And when God commands the the plant and the worm and the east wind later in the book of Jonah, I'll just say it this way, there is no question as to whether his creation would do what the creator commanded it to do. Jonah is the only one in the whole book 
who fails to obey the word of God. One author that I read this week said it this way, when non-human creation is the hearer of God's speech, there is no resistance to his word. A simple word from the creator is enough for the rest of creation. Only human beings struggle with the commands of God. Only human beings, God's most prized creation, struggle with letting God be God. It would serve us to learn something from the fish. And that leads us to the last principle. We learn something from Jonah, something from the fish. And of course, there's something important here to learn about God as well. And here's the principle. It just drops into our laps straight out of the text. Jonah says it in the verse nine. The principle is salvation is from the Lord. That's the principle. Salvation is from the Lord. Psalm 3.8 says salvation belongs to the Lord. See, salvation only comes from one place. Fish doesn't save Jonah. That's the means. It's not the end. Jonah's prayer certainly doesn't save Jonah. It's God who saves Jonah, and God saves him, even though Jonah's response to him is no better than a polished turd. One used car guy came up to me after the first service, and he said, we also talk about putting lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, right? That's what's true about Jonah. It's true about his response. And this truth that he mentions here, that he attributes to his physical deliverance, to his life and death deliverance from the sea, he doesn't understand the spiritual significance of it. That phrase, that truth, salvation is from the Lord, is the interpretive key for the whole book. Everywhere we look, God is saving people. So in chapter 1, he saves the men on the ship. And in chapter 2, he saves Jonah from drowning. And in chapter 3, he saves the Ninevites, the people of the city of Nineveh. And in chapter 4, he and Jonah have a heated discussion about what? About who God saves. We miss it if we miss this in the story. I said three weeks ago that this story is about God's compassionate heart for people. I'm going to build on that this week to say this, God's compassionate heart toward people is tired, tied closely together with his desire to save them. God is patient. God is gracious. God is compassionate because there's nothing more important to him than saving us. That's what the story of Jonah is all about. That's what this whole book is all about. God's relentless pursuit to save us, not just from the sea. He does do that in Jonah's case, but from our sin. When we go all the way back to the beginning of this book and Adam and Eve sin, they turn their back on God. They run, they try to flee God's presence just like Jonah when they do that. And in their sin, we understand that every single human being was going to do the same. God began working his plan of salvation through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, to David and the generations that follows, all the way to Jesus Christ, who is what? Who is salvation that comes from the Lord? It's what his name means. 
Yahweh saves, the Lord God saves. Remember, that's what Jesus' name means, Yeshua. It's also what Jonah's name means. That is the same root name as Jesus. And we'll remember this from three weeks ago. Everything in Jonah points to what? Jesus. Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea because of his sin, and then God delivers him from it, and he gets placed onto dry land. And it's the reason that Jesus spends three days dead in a grave for our sin, and then he raises from the grave to deliver us from sin. That is salvation that comes from the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself makes the connection in the Gospels. Three different places, he connects the dots between him and Jonah. And get this, when he does, he's speaking to the spiritual superficiality of the scribes and Pharisees. Unbelievable, the connection here. Here's what Jesus says. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 12. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn you, Pharisees and scribes. That's who Jesus is talking to. They will condemn you of your spiritual superficiality because they repented way back there at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, right now, me, Jesus, something far greater than Jonah is standing right in front of you. Jesus is salvation that is from the Lord. Jesus made that salvation possible by dying on the cross for all of our sin and spending those three days in the grave. And salvation is possible for all, not just Israelites, all Gentiles everywhere across the earth for all who believe. So what? I'm going to give you just two thoughts to consider. The first is this. If you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, there is no clearer description of the salvific work of Jesus Christ than the story that we have right here in Jonah. And I would just invite you to consider it as true. Salvation comes to those who believe in his name. That's it. That's the grace. Jesus Christ is the grace that could be yours. That's the hesed of God. And I invite you to consider that. If you are stuck, second thought to consider, if you're stuck in spiritual superficiality, I would invite you to consider what the men on the ship did. See, the men on the ship, they did something that Jesus doesn't do. They did something that Jesus doesn't do in his prayer. I mean, Jonah doesn't do in his prayer. They did something that Jonah doesn't do even throughout the book. The men on the ship are different than Jonah in this way. They move past their gratitude to genuine repentance. And when they move to genuine repentance, what is actually true about their heart before God, they are genuinely transformed from the inside out. There is no spiritual superficiality attached to any one of us who is genuinely repentant. And so I would invite you, if that's your case, to spend a few moments in repentance. She take just a minute here before the Lord and consider the condition of your own heart.
Father, it is your truth and our repentance that sets us free. Free from spiritual superficiality, free from a life without you, free from certain spiritual death. And I'm reminded this morning how easy it is for me to throw Jonah under the bus, to be critical and to be judgmental. And I find myself in this moment just thankful that he was vulnerable enough to record his story, to record his thoughts, to expose his heart that we might see ours exposed as well. May we flee spiritual superficiality by being genuinely repentant before you. May we learn obedience from the fish. And may we trust in the salvation that only comes from one place. We cannot save ourselves from sin. We cannot save ourselves even from spiritual superficiality. Only you can do that in us by the power of your spirit. And so we pray your salvific work in us and through us certainly to save us from eternal separation from from you. That is the starting point. But also to save us from ourselves day in and day out. And when we're reminded that that salvation only comes from you, we're reminded of what Jesus does on the cross to sacrifice and die for it. Our heart begins to align. The inside, interior righteousness begins to flow out and the self-righteousness, it just drifts away. And I pray that would be true of me in this community of faith. By the power of your spirit and in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Hope to see you tonight in here at 630. Go in peace and we'll see you next week.